This is a Federal News Network podcast. This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Ross. And lots of busy stuff going on in technology. We're going to talk about uh, generating power simply by looking at the night sky. You know, we got the problem with solar cells the sun has to be up well this is something you point at the dark sky and it generates electricity so it's an interesting idea not as much as solar cells but still a useful idea google is about ready to digitize five million photos for the new york times and the app of the week is going to be apple voiceover this week we are going to feature alex hills he is one of the pioneers on the in Wi-Fi technologies, especially large Wi-Fi networks. He's like a, a radio expert. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Wait a minute. We got an email from Jason in New York City. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a three-year-old laptop that has a broken screen. And it's uh, pretty good, but it won't light up at all. I checked it out, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to decide whether I should junk it or, you know, is there any way I can get the files off of it? Well, I think you'll be able to save the files from your damaged laptop. Here are a few options you can consider, Jason. First of all, if it appears that after pressing the start button, you can – if it appears that it's actually starting up and that the screen is simply not working, you can connect an external monitor to the external video port. And then, if that works, you'll be able to just go on, as always, with your computer, just using an external monitor. Or, you could simply take, if it won't start up and that won't work, you could remove the hard drive and connect it to, to another PC via, via a, you know, a, a very inexpensive USB hard drive ada- adapter. And then you could, um, and then you could just copy your files to that other computer. Or you could remove the hard drive and just put it inside of of another computer, and then you could you could copy the files. Um, now, if you decide to uh, get rid of your laptop, though, I would recommend that you remove the hard drive before disposing of it. That way, nobody will be able to steal your valuable data. We got an email from VJ in Rockville, Maryland. Tech Talk. Dear Tech Talk, um, I'm having problems with my data usage. I've heard that iOS 13 has solved this problem. What are the facts? VJ in Rockville. Well, VJ, you are really keeping up on the news. You are correct. There is a low data mode in iOS 13, which is which is due out. It's in beta now. It's going to come out within the next month. And it stops all background app refer- refreshes. And it basically postpones all non-urgent sync tasks until you're connected to Wi-Fi. It also pauses all background sync tasks. When the low data mode is enabled... The photo apps won't back up your photos until you're on Wi-Fi. 
Now, you won't see much difference in using your iPhone today to day, but with all the background processes gone away, you'll be able to control your, um, your, your, your data a little bit better. Now, if you want to enable the load data mode, you simply, now what you've got to install iOS 13, it's coming out in the next month. Tap on this, go to, go to settings, then tap on cellular, and then under cellular, um, tap on cellular data options, and then just toggle the load data mode on, and then you are good to go. We got an email from Donna in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, I've had a problem and I need your help ASAP. I was browsing Facebook last night and I checked and I caught on a and I checked on a I clicked on a link that caught my attention. As soon as I clicked it, my screen went solid blue. The computer froze up. I finally just unplugged it and booted it back up into Windows, but now none of my programs will open, and it's running really slow. I'm sure that I clicked something that put a virus on my system, but Norton Antivirus won't open, so I can't even run that scan. Is there anything I can do to fix this problem besides buying a new computer? Thanks for your help, Donna in Pittsburgh. Well, Donna, you probably did pick up some kind of virus, and you really want to, you're going to have to clean your PC as best you can. And, um, and uh, the best way to do that, I mean, if you, the best way to actually clean a system up completely is to simply do a clean install, just to reinstall everything from scratch. Now, the problem is, of course, you would uh, you would uh, lose all your data and files, so that's not particularly a good option right now until you can get those files off. So you can you can actually uh, re, you know re, you go through a systematic process to remove all of the malware manually. And if you can get your PC running again, then you can copy your files if you want to end up doing a clean install. So first thing you want to boot your PC in the safe mode. That's probably the best thing. You boot it in the safe mode, and then you uh, you want to download any. You want to remove any toolbars that have been installed. Toolbars are almost always just laden with malware. So you can go to the a, a program called the Geek Installer. The Geek Installer, you can download that once you're in the safe mode, and then you can install that on your computer, and you can run Geek Installer, and that will remove all the, all the, uh, all the toolbars. That would be the first thing you could do. Now, if possible, once you're in the safe mode, you could try to update your antivirus software and, then, and scan that. Now, if you're unable to update your antivirus program, then I would uninstall it and install another antivirus program, a vast antivirus, A-V-A-S-T antivirus, that's a great free program, and run a scan with that. Once you've run a vast antivirus, I would download the free version of Malwarebytes, M-A-L-W-A-R-E-B-Y-T-E-S, Malwarebytes. Download it and install it and run through that. That is also a very good tool for looking for malware. And then, and also Malwarebytes is something else which is pretty good, call it an anti-rootkit, because some of the malware is so sneaky that it goes into the root and and it, and you boot up with the malware in place and then you, you can't even detect it. So you've got to have a root kit in order to look for that. So da- malware bytes has an anti-root kit, so you can download that and um, and follow the follow the instructions and then that should uh, get rid of any root kits. And then um, the last thing you might want to do just to check on what's auto running. A lot of times malware will just start, turn on a lot of stuff as you're booting up. And you only want to auto-run stuff that you want. So there's a program called Auto Runs, A-U-T-O-R-U-N-S. You can download that, 
and you can save it to your desktop, extract all the files, and click on autorun.exe to run the program. And then you look at all the things that are automatically running, and things you don't recognize, just uncheck them, and then those will not be automatically installed when you're booting up. Listen, good luck, Donna. That's If you go through that list of stuff, it's going to take you a good morning. We got an email from <laughs> Alan in Springfield, Missouri. Dear Doc and Jim, I just got my new iPhone and configured it to allow Wi-Fi calling. Let me see here. Oh, yeah, there we go. Configured it to... <laughs> page two. I was, I was looking for page three. Got it. Configured ah. it to, 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 uh, to go for Wi-Fi calling. Now, and it works when I'm at work, but when I get home and connect to my home router, Wi-Fi calling fails to initiate. Now, I need Wi-Fi calling because my cellular signal at home is very weak, particularly in the basement. Thanks for your help, Alan, in Springfield, Missouri. Well, Wi-Fi calling is very nice. What it does, it when you enable it, it, uh, when you go onto a new Wi-Fi network, it establishes a connection with servers with your with your uh, cellular provider, and and your cellular provider routes all phone calls to you through that Wi-Fi connection. And if you make a phone call, it goes out through the Wi-Fi connection. So you're not using cellular at all. So Wi-Fi calling is tremendous, especially when you're traveling. Yeah, you can be traveling in Europe, and you use Wi-Fi connection on a hotel Wi-Fi, and it's just like you're making a local call. Now, this is the thing. Uh, not all routers are configured to support Wi-Fi calling. Now, I've got Verizon Fios. It is out of the box, you know, configured to support Wi-Fi calling, not a problem. But when you use Wi-Fi calling, your device must be able to communicate with the carrier network. And that means that certain traffic has to be able to go through the firewall. It turns out that Wi-Fi calling uses something called Internet Protocol security, IPsec. Now, this is a method to set up a tunnel of encrypted traffic that goes between your router, between your cell phone, and the a carrier, the provider, their services. You've got that encrypted tunnel, and that keeps all of your traffic uh, secure. So your router must have IPsec enabled. Some routers do not have IPsec enabled when you turn on the firewall. It just disables IPsec. So you're going to go to the firewall section of your router, go to the settings within your router, go to the firewall section, and make certain that IPsec is enabled. Now, it turns out that Wi-Fi calling uses two ports of, of IPsec. They use uh, UDP, User Datagram Protocol, UDP, port 500, and UDP port 4500. Now, ports are like, sort of like internal addresses, so if a signal comes in, if a, if a packet comes into your network or into your computer, say to port 4500, that your computer then knows to forward it to a particular program that's always listening for, for port 4500. And so this is the way to direct the traffic to the proper program. And all of that... The, the handshake and all of the coordination that's required to set up this encrypted data stream uses those two ports. So you have to make that those you have to make certain that those two ports are open and that data on those two ports passes through your firewall. So these ports must be open. Now you want to check you might want to check the access lists in your firewall section to see whether those ports are open. Now if you're kind of a technical guy, all of these requirements are described in an RFC 5996. 
that's the way that um, the Internet Society, um, IETF, the Internet, Eng- Internet Engineering Task Force, actually creates standards for the Internet, and that's Request for Comment, RFC 5996. And that describes version 2 of the Internet Key Exchange. So that describes what they call IKE version 2. And that's what it's using. And so it's probably worth looking. Oh, there's one other thing that you want to make certain. Uh, if you want to have Wi-Fi calling um, running efficiently, you want to have the maximum packet size. That's called the MTU. You want to set it to 1,500 because you can set that MTU at different values, make certain that your MTU is set for 1,500. That's in the configuration section of your router. You can just search for MTU once you get into the router settings, and I think you'll find it. Well, I hope this works for you, because Wi-Fi calling is definitely a must if your cellular connection is not functioning very well. We got an email from Dawn in Baltimore, Maryland. What's the difference between system image backup and regular backup? Are these just regular backups, or is there something really different about them? I've been using Carbonite to back up my irreplaceable files, but would I be better creating a Windows 10 systems image backup instead? Don in Baltimore. Well, Don, what you refer to as a regular backup typically only backs up selected files. These are your critical files. And it leaves everything else other than files unbacked up. So your applications, your operating system are not backed up at all, but you have your critical files, which is which are good. So if your hard drive fails, if you want to get your computer up and running again, you've got to reinstall the operating system. You've got to reinstall all the applications, and then you can copy all your data files onto the, onto the, onto the hard drive. So it does make sense to have an image. An image images, it's basically a disk image, and it images the entire hard drive, including the operating system, including all your applications, and including all your data files. Now, now to run a disk image takes quite a while, and so you wouldn't necessarily run it all the time, but most people will run the disk image on an external hard drive. You get a USB external hard drive. You've got Windows 10, fortunately, and Windows 10 has built in within itself the ability to do a disk image. So I would continue backing up your critical files to Carbonite because that really makes them secure in the event something happens at your house, somebody steals your computer, you always got your critical files. But I would then periodically run a disk image whenever you make a big change to your operating system when you and you know maybe if you get a security update or if you add an application um, do another disk image you don't have to do a disk image every day you just do it you just do it frequently enough so that your operating system and applications are up to date and then you do your daily backup of your critical files to carbonite so to actually do a disk image with windows 10 you want to Go to the Start button and type the word Control Panel, and that will bring up the Control Panel. Then you click on Systems and Security. Then you click on File History, and then you click on System Image Backup in the lower left-hand corner, and then you click the button that says Create System Image. And boom, you, you can do that as often as you, as you want. I think it's a good idea to bo- do both. Listen, we love your emails. 
Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday at 9 on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and on the web at stratford.edu. You can also watch us do the program, which is terribly exciting, by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. I think he swallowed his Salem. Yes. That's why I was... uh... Today, low, listen. Low there. Today we're going to feature Alec, Dr. Alex Hills. He's a distinguished service professor at Carnegie Mellon. He and his team, team built the first big Wi-Fi network at Carnegie Mellon. Mm. He is one of the pioneers that actually helped get Wi-Fi out there big time. He's a real innovator. Many people have called him the father of Wi-Fi, but actually. I think the real father of Wi-Fi is the guy that set the standards, 802.11 standards, and we've already featured him. So maybe we'll call him the um, first son of Wi-Fi rather than the father of Wi-Fi. But he is a great, great innovator in technology. Alex Hills was born in 1943 in Caldwell, New Jersey. He was His father encouraged him to get interested in, in radios and radio transmission. So... Uh, he he actually studied and got his novice class ham radio license at age 14. Now that meant that he had to basically, uh, you know, trans, you know, read Morse code at five words a minute. That's the novice level. And he got his general class a year later. That meant he was up to 13 words a minute. I mean, by the time he was done, he was he got up to around 30 words a minute in uh, Morse code reading. He built his first transmitter and receiver from a kit. Then later on, he bought some surplus equipment. He had this whole ham radio studio up in the corner of his room, and radio radio became his passion. He was really interested in trying to understand how waves ba- bounced around and why certain 
frequencies you would pick up at night but not in the day. And so he really, through experimenting and playing around with his ham radio system, he began to understand the mysteries of radio transmission. He received his Bachelor of Science from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in 1964. Then he went around, and it was, he really didn't know what he wanted to do with his life, so he started teaching engineering at various institutions around the country here and there. And then he decided to go back to graduate school and get his master's degree at Arizona State University in engineering. But he was looking for some excitement. He'd, he, and he was like, you know, this teaching and all this stuff is not exciting. So he joined the Army. Mm-hmm. He joined the Army, and he served in the in the U.S. Army Signal Corps. Oh, uh, well, yeah. You see, guys, he's a ham radio guy. Right. And he was also served as a company commander in Korea. So I don't think he was in combat. I think all of his radio work kept him in that uh, Signal Corps. Then he got out of the uh, Army got, uh, after a couple of years, and he was still looking. He said, I just don't want to take a 9-to-5 job. He was still looking for something exciting. So he decided to move to Alaska, and he was hired by RCA to install VHS communication systems to 40 to 142 remote Alaskan villages. Hmm. Now, these are really Alaskan, you know, remote villages. Because, you know, Alaska's got a few big towns, but all of the native, you know, we used to call them Eskimos, but now they're they're different. There are three or four different, you know, uh, native tribes up there where spread all over Alaska in these small villages that would just be like, you know, 100 people, 300 people, very small, all over the place. And they were, they were not connected by roads, and there was no way to, to get back to them. And RCA uh, wanted to become the telecom provider for Alaska when they bought the, um, the military VHS system that was actually connecting large cities. And when they bought it for $28 million, Alaska said, we'll sell this to you if you promise to, to extend the service to the villages. And so he started going out, and he started installing these VHS antennas. And this, So let me ask you a question. You mean VHS or VHF? VHF. Oh, uh, okay. All right, because I was looking at VHS because I'd never heard of it. No, VHF. Okay, VHS. So it's a, v- ra- it's a radio. Very high yeah. frequency. VHF. Yes. Okay. Sorry about VHF. that. VHF. Yeah, what am I saying? Yeah, VHF, very high frequency communication systems, and uh, and so he he was and he and they basically these VHF is direct line of sight. It doesn't mm-hmm. it it's really FM radio, right? Yeah, it really doesn't bounce off the ionosphere. It it does it it does not carry it on the ground like like a ground wave. It actually has to be a line of sight. So he this was where he learned what he calls about the five bad boys of radio. <laughs> Okay, the five bad boys of radio are shadowing, when uh-huh. something gets in your way and blocks yep. the signal. Reflection, where you reflect off a surface and get multipath. Refraction, where, this, where the beam is bent by changes in, changes in the atmosphere. Then you've got scattering, where you're scattered by a rough surface. And diffraction, where you, you, sort of, where you, you have a sharp surface and you have kind of a, a diffraction as you sort of bend around the surface. Mm-hmm. Those are the five bad boys of radio that, that you really get used to when you're working with VHF communication systems. So he, he was out taking, he was going out by pontoon plane out to these remote areas. I mean, it's like it's like minus yeah. 60 degrees. It's, it's like frozen desert is what it is. And and a lot of these villages are on the are right on the coast, and the, and, and the wind is, is about 50 to 60 miles an hour wind. Mm-hmm. So he's installing these VHF antennas, 
in the wind in minus 50 degree weather and and uh and actually he he loved it because he got to know the people they were so nice and and they needed communication to you know to get medical help they they had shortwave radio systems now shortwave radios they could they could communicate to, uh, to, to other cities but shortwave bounces off the ionosphere and the problem is you've you've got the um you you've got the the the, the northern lights the aurora borealis as uh-huh. they say the aurora which is basically an electrical storm uh in the in, in in the in the ionosphere and when you've got the aurora borealis up there the the, the northern lights the rate the shortwave radio waves do not bounce off the ionosphere and then you lose all communication so the shortwave was not reliable and they want to get something they want to get vhf in order to in order to make it reliable so so we started putting these things up he he got out to about 22 23 of the of the small of, of the small villages one was well, there was one interesting one he 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 went to a, a village on on um on the little diomedine island the little diom diomedy island and this is a small island in the bering strait and it's right beside the big diomedy <laughs> island the big diomedy island and the big diomedy island is controlled by russia and the little diomedy island is controlled by the us and the border between the two countries is right between the islands interesting and so they were on the western side of the island so they couldn't even see the main mainland alaska so he aimed the VHF antenna to bounce off the cliffs at Big Diomedy and then reflect it back to the mainland. So mm-hmm. in that case, one of the bad boys of radio was helpful, reflection. Yes. So he, this, this is what he did. Now, the problem with this VHF um, uh, communication is that some of the, uh, some of the uh, villages were so far away that they couldn't reach all the way back to a to a main communication city, unless you had a repeater which was sitting on top of a mountain. And the problem is, if you put a repeater on top of a mountain, and these there are heavy winds up there, like 70, 80 miles an hour. Yeah. You, you've got to fly in diesel fuel to keep the generators going, in order to in order to which run. Which is tough to do in 70 and 80 mile an hour winds. It is tough to do, and and really not not a very good plan. And no. so. And so, you know, RCA was not moving with this project at all. They, 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 I mean, they sort of said we'll do it, but in order to get the main, to buy the main system, but their commitment to getting, to getting uh, communication to all of the villages was really not that strong. And so Alex just got totally fed up with them, and he quit in frustration. And then he went, and he was hired by a public radio station that just started out, WKOZ. It was in Kotzebue, Kotzebue. It turned out that these radio stations could not really afford very many people. No, they can't. And, and they really needed an engineer, uh, and, and they figured if they hire a general manager, he can't do anything. So what they do, they advertise yes. for an engineer, and they, and they don't tell them about the man. And they say, oh, by the way, you're also general manager. Yes, so you wind up doing a lot of different yeah. things. And so he, mm-hmm. he'd make the coffee, put the paper in the teletype machine. Probably was on the air. He was on the air. Alex in the morning. <laughs> he had a show, Alex a in minute. the morning. <laughs> we have a super high-frequency omnidirectional antenna here. Let's see if we can listen to KOTZ. Okay. Serving the needs of the polar bear community in northwest Alaska and the greater frost belt, this is Public Radio, K-O-T.
Z. There it is. Wow. We got it. This wow. sounds crystal clear here that in D.C., doesn't fantastic. it? fantastic. So he, and, and they had all sorts of features on this KOTZ where people would call in and say, you know, br- bring milk home for dinner. Or, I mean, because they, they, there was no way that they could communicate. But you know what? You see this a lot. If you go, if you go up into Maine, into uh-huh. rural Maine, you see a lot of... Community radio stations have these low power. They're not yep. a full full power radio station. They're mm-hmm. low power, and they serve the community. And this is how these people get stuff like that that's, out. That's how they do it. Mm-hmm. Well, Alex, Alex believed that the only way to get uh, phone service to these remote villages with with satellite links, mm-hmm. because then you don't need to have these uh, repeater stations on hilltops or on mountains. You basically the satellite is your link. And and RCA said no, that's too expensive because they 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 all they were always putting in these uh, these 10 meter dishes which are 30 feet and they they weigh tons and very expensive. He said no, small satellite dishes should be enough for the villages. And RCA said no, that would never work because they're basically connecting with geosynchronous satellites that are that are you know that are quite a distance down near the sort of more toward the equator. And so uh, he he actually um, got them put pressure on them to come up and test it, and the small satellite earth stations worked fine for the remote villages. But then RCA was still not fighting it. So he was at KOTZ then, still at KOTZ, was Mm -hmm. working there. But his mission was to get telephone service to these remote villages. So then he he went to the politicians, and he convinced the politicians that they sh- that, that that really that was a good solution, and he got the state legislature in Alaska to allocate five million dollars to buying these uh, satellite dishes, these small satellite dishes for the uh, for the earth stations for the remote, remote villages, and that would have bought around a hundred of them. Then all of a sudden, RCA got worried. It looked like Alaska was going to go in competition with them. So they said, well, well, no, well, let's go back and look at that. And so they <laughs> and so they cut a deal, and they said, look, if you buy, if you spend five million dollars and buy these uh, these dishes, we will pay to install them and we'll maintain them and we'll mm-hmm. run the network. Hmm. So that seemed like a pretty good uh, a you know a pretty good deal. And I'm thinking Alex was the driver behind that. So. See, there's something about, you know, there are people that can invent things or people that innovate. Innovators are people that get it done, get it deployed, and get it out there. Right. You know, a lot of people that come up with great ideas that never go anywhere. Alex is an innovator. He pushes it until it's done. And his goal was to get phone service to these remote villages. So he got this system started, and they, they put these dishes in each of these villages. Now, it turned out when the villages were were set up before with uh, with the VHF system. There was one telephone in the village, say at the uh, central store, and everybody used one phone. You'd go there and they'd keep a log. If you made a long distance call, you'd write down on the log how long you talked, and so they'd know how much it would, it would cost. They'd divvy up the bill at the end of the month. But one phone in a village is not very satisfying, and so they really needed something better than that. And so then Alex got the idea. He said, "Why don't we?" Set up now that we've got these satellite dishes. Let's set up a telephone exchange in each town so that everybody has their own phone. Then the telephone exchange is connected to the satellite dish. So that's what he did. And so he organized. He did it. He organized the OTZ telephone cooperative. Now, OTZ actually is the name is the are the three letters that designate the airport at 
Cause of Beer. Ah, of course. Yeah, Cause of yeah. Beer. Uh-huh. OTZ. So it was the OTZ Television Cooperative, and he he bought the equipment. He went out. He was president of the, of the cooperative, and he went out, and he set this thing up in all of these. And he, they picked ten villages in their cooperative, and he went out and set up the individual telephone switches, telephone exchanges in each town, and then he connected that to the satellite dish, and all of a sudden, bingo. They actually, for the first time in their life, they had a phone that was right in their house. It was transformational for these villages. And then what happened is then other villages wanted it, and so ultimately there were more cooperatives formed, and Alex showed the other cooperatives how to set it up, and each cooperative would have, say, like 10 villages. And so ultimately, all of the villages actually had phone service at their location. And it was because Alex Hill drove it, drove it to completion. He finished this job. Finally, all the villages got their uh, got their service by the end of um, 1977 or so, or early 77. So he said, mission accomplished. He left Alaska. And he decided to finish work on his Ph.D., so he enrolled at Carnegie Mellon, and he completed his Ph.D. in 1979. And after graduation, he was hired at CMU to teach. And he was, of course, he's going to teach radio. And in 1993 there at uh, Carnegie Mellon, he became the founding director of the Information Networking Institute. And this was where they were going to come up with all sorts of advanced technologies for networking. And they said, well, what is our big project going to be? And this was back in 93. This was be, even before there were Wi-Fi standards, by the way. There was no 802.11. There were no standards yet. And they said, let's do wireless. And so they decided to set up a wireless system on the campus. And, and nobody had ever set up a huge wireless system. There were wireless access points that were set up. There would be one wireless access point maybe, and it would just be in one room. But how do you set up a wireless system that covers a whole building and a whole campus. And so they decided to work on it. And how do you get software to support it? So the Information Networking Institute, they worked on the technology to bring out a wireless network. Now, Alex, you know, always called it, because these are just radios, really. But, yeah. but the new word for radio is wireless. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, it's now wireless. And so they basically teamed up with uh, Lucent. And Lucent had made uh, individual... Um, uh, this we're making individual access points, and that actually at that point they were at nine nine hundred and ninety five megahertz. It was it was one of the unlicensed bands, and so they 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 got uh, five hundred thousand dollars from the National Science Foundation, and they started working on this uh, this this large wireless range. And the and the issue is how can you place all of these Wi-Fi access points so that you can, you have full coverage in a building? And that was a huge project that they that they worked on. Now, this network was called Wireless Andrew, after, you know, Carnegie Mellon, Andrew Carnegie, Andrew Mellon. So it was Wireless Andrew. And actually, the first network on Carnegie Mellon was called Andrew. Mm -hmm. So this is Wireless Andrew, (laughs) you see. But in addition to working on the wireless thing, they had people working on uh, software that would automatically automatically transfer from the Wireless Andrew to cellular when, when it dropped off. They were working on software that would automatically handle distributed files and synchronizing digital files, even when you were coming in and out of connection on the wireless network. So they were working on all the different elements that would take 
uh, wireless technology to make it transparent to the user and just work seamlessly, all things that we take for granted now. And this was back in 1993. That's uh, more than 20 years ago they were doing this, you see. And the standards for Wi-Fi didn't come out till 95. So, so they ended up finding a way. They, they tried to calculate where to put all these access points, and they really... They, there was really no good ca- way to calculate it, so they ended up just sticking access points on the wall and then measuring signal levels around the building. And they, through trial and error, they developed a they developed a good distribution of access points for the building. And then they they launched uh, wireless Andrew at this at using the Lucent uh, access points at like 900 um, uh, megahertz. Then two years later. We had the we had the Wi-Fi standards, which are 802.11. Now you know the eight, that was an IEEE uh, group, the 802 group, and you know why they're called 802? Because the first meeting that the 802 group had was in February 1980. Ah, 82, 82, 802. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the 11th standard that they worked on was for wi- wireless LANs. 802.11. 802.11. Yeah, that's right. So I'll just give you a little history there, and so. So they and so then uh, and he he turned uh, wireless Android into a production network. But then they wanted to really get better throughput because this 995 megahertz there was only one channel in it, and and they they, they couldn't get enough throughput. So they, he wanted to use the new standard. So he went to Lucent and he proposed to them, why don't you give us uh, 400 uh, of the 802.11 um, access points, which are which operate at 2.4 gigahertz. That's that's another unlicensed band, and. And we will develop techniques to to deploy these things to make large-scale Wi-Fi networks. And so they agreed to do that, and then they upgraded the whole network there at Carnegie Mellon, and they uh, and they developed the technique for designing the Wi-Fi networks. Now Alex Hills designed what he called a rollabout, which 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 was a which was used in Wi-Fi network design. That it had it had Wi-Fi detector, it had a laptop, and you'd roll it around the halls. And they would duct tape um, access points at different at different areas on the floor, and they would roll the rollabout around and make measurements. And then the and then the rollabout would then do calculations to calculate how they should move those access points so they would be more optimized. Mm-hmm. So they ended up uh, ended up uh, really developing that, and 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 they worked with Lucent because they were working on technologies at Lucent on how can you hand off from one access point to another. How can you dynamically adjust the power of one access point if it's overlapping too much with the next access point? How can you dynamically allocate which channel you're on so that you minimize uh, you, you, you minimize interference between all the access points? So they're working with Lucent on developing that technology. So it was very much involved at the formative stages of Wi-Fi. So some people think he should be called father of Wi-Fi, and others think he's just the, the first son the first, of Wi-Fi. First son. Now, now, Dr. Hills also worked, and the thing is, he was the radio guy. Of course, radio guy, was for him, it's all antennas. Mm-hmm. He thinks the whole deal is antennas, and he says, and why are we having trouble designing this Wi-Fi network to work in the building, to work all over the campus? We're, we're having trouble because the bad boys of radio always come there back. There you go. Shadowing, reflection, refraction, scattering, and diffraction are always causing problems. No matter what you do, he says, the bad boys come back to haunt you. Now, Dr. Hills worked with CMN students on many projects in developing countries. He would take 
He was want to deploy wireless systems, wireless access to remote villages all over the world. I mean, he was carrying sort of what he was doing in Alaska, but to other countries. And um, and he just loved to you know to get students in use in, in, you know in projects that will help others. Now he holds 18 patents. He retired in 2010 from Carnegie Mellon, and he he, he loves Ohio, uh, Alaska. He moved. He now lives in Palmer, Alaska. You know, so I, I read two books that he had. One of them is mm. one of them is Wi-Fi and the Bad Boys of Radio. It was a great read. And another one is uh, was about connecting the Alaskan villages. So the last two days, I've read two of Alex Hill's books, and this guy is an innovator. He makes stuff happen. There you go. And, you know, guy looked up Kotzebue, Alaska. Uh, population uh, 3,021. Average daytime high in June is 56. Uh, actually, uh, June is uh, 50 degrees. Wow. Nighttime low in uh, February is 10 below the average nighttime low. That's right. Right now at Public Radio KOTZ, <laughs> it's 28 degrees. And here in Washington, it's 40 degrees. This is Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, and 103.9 FM HD2. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell. The security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Russ. Thank you for spending some of your Thanksgiving weekend here with us at Tech Talk Radio, where it is time now to play Pop Quiz. In Profiles in IT, we just talked about Professor Alex Hills, who some call the first son of Wi-Fi. Professor Hills was a radio guy. He had a ham radio license at age 14, and he went on to become the general manager and chief engineer of a radio station in Alaska. The Pop Quiz question today is, give us the call letters of that radio station. If you know the answer to today's question, we'll put down the drumstick and pick up your phone and Give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, 
is 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Quiet Elkshirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're listening to these two bad boys of radio in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on that real turkey of an international line. 877-936-39333. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, standing by to take your calls. So, dial now. Interesting. Now, it's time for, for food science. science. Mm. And frozen a turkey. Yes. Remember last year we talked about the problem that uh, that the white meat you want it, it, it you don't want to cook it as long as it gets dry it gets dry and, and the get, dark meat take, takes longer and to the cook. dark meat this takes longer over there well uh, Dr Peter Snyder Ph.D. from the Hospitality Institute of Technology and Management Wow St Paul Minnesota has a solution to this put the turkey in frozen hmm. See, now this is now this is really a, just an interesting idea. The FDT food code allows us. In fact, a- FDA has a cooking guideline out on this. Now there are, there's a real uh, advantage to cooking the turkey frozen. First of all, you don't have to thaw it out. Well, there's that. You get up, tur- you get up, uh, you get up Thanksgiving morning. And say, oh, the turkey! I forgot to thaw out the turkey, and there's there's not time to do it. So. Uh, H, uh, the uh, FDA food code actually has guidelines for cooking a frozen turkey, 12 to 13 pounds. Now, the reason they say this is actually a pretty good thing to do is when you put it in frozen, the legs thaw out first and start cooking right away. But the breast, since it's on the interior, thaws out last, so it naturally cooks less time. Interesting. And so the breast meat can be juicy and the legs can be done. Good. So you're using basically physics to your advantage. Now, what I did... I got out the thermal diffusion. I've got the uh, science of cooking. I've been, uh-huh. I, I've been putting in the, the shape of a turkey, and I've been doing these uh, thermal diffusion equation ca- calculations all week. Uh-huh. And uh, and it's been it's been quite uh, quite quite the effort. And, and and my results have agreed approximately with FDA results. So well, what they good. say is they put the turkey on a shallow pan, and for the first two to two and a half hours, the legs and thighs get heated up to approximately 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but the breast to about uh, one inch is still at the uh, soft ice point of around 25 degrees Fahrenheit. At this point, you can actually stick a monitor in, a temperature monitor into the into the turkey. At about three and a half hours, the legs and thighs will be between 150 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and the breast will be 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. At that point, you can actually remove the bag of heart, all the the bag of stuff that's in the middle, the heart, the liver, and, and the neck oh, can, can be you removed. you better not forget that. I know somebody who has... At four and a half to five hours, the turkey's nicely cooked. You can check the temperature. The legs and thighs should be at around 175 to 185, and the breast will be a moist 160 to 170. Cooking turkeys to these temperatures is adequate to assure the reduction of bacteria on the surface skin, like salmonella. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason FDA said this is pretty good is that when you thaw a turkey out in the in the refrigerator, that salmonella could cross-contaminate either in your refrigerator or on the cooking surface. Right. So, so you don't have this problem. You don't have to thaw it out. And the uh, and the second reason they said it's good is that it allows you to cook the dark meat uh, a little bit longer than the light meat. So... And I'm thinking, that just suits me perfectly. I don't have to thaw the turkey. I, but you, 
but you have to take the plastic bag yeah, off the turkey. That's a good you idea. You just can't throw the turkey no. in the oven. It's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University. This is Tech Talk Radio. Generating power from the night sky. Sounds interesting. Now, we already know that you can put out solar cells, and they'll, you'll generate power when the sun is shining. But what happens when it's absolutely dark out there? There's no moon, nothing, pitch black. How can you generate sky? Well, some research generate power from the, from the night sky. Some researchers have figured out a way to do that. They use it by harnessing the temperature difference between outer space and the Earth. So what they do, and then they use a, the thermoelectric effect, which actually generates power from that temperature difference. And they have created an actual prototype that has the ability to light a single light bulb from just the night sky power. Now, the core of this new idea is the, uses the thermoelectric generators, I said, which produces electricity when one side of the generator is cooler than the other. Now, the sky-facing side of the generator is attached to an aluminum plate, and it faces the sky, and it's basically cooled by the night sky. Now, the other side of the generator faces the ground, and it is basically heated by the, the earth and the, and the atmosphere the, uh, around the, the, um, the, the lower plate. And you get about a two-degree temperature differential between the two plates, and that is enough to generate a little bit of power. So these guys, they actually made a, they actually made a 20 centimeter prototype, 20 centimeter on, 20 centimeter by 20 centimeter, one face, one side facing up, one side facing down. And it generated 25 milliwatts of power. It was enough to light up an LED diode. Now they estimate that they could get, uh, that if they could make something which were, which was about four or five times larger than that, they would be able to light up a, 
a light bulb and, you know, keep, keep, keep the lights going in a house. So this is extremely useful in developing countries where you, where you don't have batteries to store energy when the, when the solar cells aren't working. You can create a little bit of power at night from the night sky. I thought that was just a clever idea. That's pretty nice. When are you switching over to the solar power at the Schertz compound? It's going to be a while because, <laughs> I, honestly, I need more than one light bulb. See, it's a lot, need... it, it's a lot less efficient than, than solar cells, of course, because they get uh, – they estimate that they get about half a watt per square meter, which uh-huh. is a lot less power density than you get with solar cells. Half a watt per square meter is what they can get out of this yeah, device. I, I get that this is not as efficient, but are, are you thinking about solar power? I may think about it. I don't have it yet. I'm surprised you have it. I You're know. such a gadget guy. I know, I know. And, and this is the last year where you can get some sort of tax credit, right? Tax credit, yeah. <laughs> tax credits run out this year. Google is going to digitize 5 million uh, historical photos at the time. Now, the time doesn't keep bodies in their morgue. It keeps pictures. It's basement under the Times Square office stuffed with cabinets and drawers. They store 5 to 7 million images along with about information about why, when they were published and why and a lot of notes. The morgue, as it is now called, goes all the way back to the 19th century. Google, using AI, will scan all the handwritten typewritten notes attached to each image They'll categorize them by semantic information that they contain, linking data to locations and dates. Google says the time will be able to use this object recognition tool to extract even more information from the photos. Now, the, this, these pictures will not be available to the public as they were when Google worked with Time Magazine's archive, but hopefully that will be next because that is a great way to get information out and about. App of the week. It's okay. Apple VoiceOver. This is actually a pretty powerful app. And here's an example of somebody who used it. 1993, Scott Leeson was U.S. Army veteran who had seven years of service as a visual communications expert. Unfortunately, he also, that year that he got out, he lost his vision in both eyes when he was shot during a robbery attempt. Mm. 25 years later... Leeson has his iPhone XR and the iOS voiceover feature to help him with his everyday life, and that includes regular surfing sessions in the San Diego area. VoiceOver is a gesture-based screen reader that lets you enjoy the iPhone even if you can't see the screen. With VoiceOver enabled, just triple-click the home button to access it. Whenever you're on iOS, you'll hear a description of everything that's happening on your screen from battery level to who's calling to which app is on your finger. You can adjust the speaking speaking rate and pitch to suit you. Because VoiceOver is integrated with iOS, it works with all the built-in iPhone apps. You can create custom labels for buttons, including third-party apps. And Apple works with the iOS developer community to make even more apps compatible with VoiceOver. With the help of his new iPhone XR, Leeson is able to get ready for a day of surfing by checking the latest surfing reports. He also uses the Apple Watch 4 to monitor his progress of his surfing workouts. This app has made him independent. And the, the thing that is amazing, when now he doesn't use the app when he's actually surfing. He uses it just in his regular, regular everyday life. But he has learned when he's surfing to listen to the waves. And he says while he's surfing, he almost forgets that he's blind. Huh. And he said it's just super relaxing. That is a fantastic app. We had a, we had a scare this last week. The world's longest-running webcam 
almost oh went offline. It was like me. critical. It almost went offline. Fog cam. Fog cam. Fog okay, cam. so what's the point of having a fog cam? Fog cam is fog cam is uh, on. You can't uh, see anything. That's right. So the you you use fog cam to monitor the fog in San Francisco. Oh. Now fog cam, the world's longest running webcam. Uh, was supposed to be shut down by the creators, Jeff Schwartz and Dan Wong. They announced that on Twitter last week. And there was a huge eruption of support for FogCam. FogCam's been in near-continuous operation for the past 25 years. And it only went off temporarily offline for a few times when San Francisco State University had to move it to a new location. Now, originally, these guys came up with the idea for a live stream while they were taking a computer science class and learning the process of scripting. Now, Schwartz at that time ran another webcam from his apartment that streamed his cats, <laughs> Petunia and Webb. Oh, my. A cat guy. Yeah, because That's a little frightening. he wanted to keep an eye on them while he was attending class. You know, he didn't trust what they would be up to. So well, they're they, cats. You never trust you what they're up know. to. You never know. I don't know. they got Petunia and Webb. Now, uh, Schwartz and Wong, they, they put, put together this web project, this little pet project, to, uh, you know, monitor fog on the campus. And this project, it became very popular. And they, they, decided, they, they decided that they were going to take down FogCam because they thought after 25 years they'd been maintaining that long enough. So they put on their website that they're going to take it down. And I bet they were deluged. Because, and they said because they don't have support from the university. They kept trying to get a new location for the university. The university was not very cooperative, and they said, well, yeah. they said the heck with it. We're, not, we're just what's not going to do it. Yeah, what's the point? Well, what happened was there was such an outroar. So I, so I, I was originally going to give this article that you know it was being shut down. Well, I decided to go to the fog, fog cam website. <laughs> By the way, it's fogcam.org. If you want to go to fogcam.org. So I decided to go to the fogcam website just to check in this morning. And guess what? They it's scratch. not there. Oh, wait a minute, it is fogcam.org. Oh, yeah, and so I, and right at the top it said the. This is what they said, that the San Francisco State University has confirmed that it has agreed to continue maintaining fog cam. And this is what they said. San Francisco State University has supported the operation of fog cam since its inception in 1994. Now, that's a little bit of an overstatement because they didn't get that much support, but at least they let them run it. Uh, and that's a major milestone, the longest running, you know, streaming camera on yeah, the right. Internet. And they said the university looks forward to continuing the webcam's legacy. Guess what you don't see when you look in the webcam this morning? What? Fog. There's no fog yeah, out there? there's low clouds, but there's pretty decent visibility. So I so. knew our tech talk audience would want to know that fog, fog cam was and alive sure and well. Both of them have now jammed the fog cam. To allow, I'm on there, That's, too, so it's three of them. That's it for this week. Tune in next week for more Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday at 9 on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. If you don't have a radio, we stream the program live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. You can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. You can hear previous broadcasts by listening to our podcasts at Podcast One. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. Tech Talk Radio is a presentation of Stratford University and Dr. Richard Church.
This paid commercial may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program.